Okay, let's get started with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I pray for clarity in your word and forgive me for all the things that, that uh, you know, I, I mess up when I, when I teach. Not in so much as when I teach on the authority of your word, but, you know, in my interpretations and my attempts to understand. Forgive me for any error that I have in my own life. I, I don't want to be wrong and I'll certainly... Uh, certainly always be open to discussion on these things, but where your word is clear, uh, we try to teach with authority, and that's what we're going to try to do today. Help those who listen to, to think through these things, and help the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Uh, send your spirit into our hearts to convict us of the reality of our own enslavement to sin and, and the things in this world. Help to free us. Thank you for the work you've done in accomplishing that in Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so once again, recording the sermon for those who are still separated from us because of uh, the virus situation in the world. We are through the first five chapters of Timothy, and we now come to chapter 6. We're going to read just the first two verses today. Uh, we won't go any further than the first two. There will certainly be plenty to talk about there. So let's uh, read verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So I basically have four points to make here uh, in the text. Uh, first of all, you know, this isn't a point, but verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Let as many as our bondservants who are under the yoke of their own masters. It's talking about slaves. Slavery was very common in the Roman world. There were millions of slaves in the Roman world. Slavery was the backbone of the economy in the Roman world. So Paul is talking to slaves who had been saved in Ephesus, who are Christians. Uh, and now, even though they are finding uh, personal salvation in Jesus Christ, they're not finding you know, material freedom in the world. They're still slaves. So there was nothing about Christianity that promised once you became a Christian, all of your worldly scenarios are going to get better. All of your worldly problems are going to go away. You know, that, that's not true. And it wasn't true in the, in the ancient world. Which brings me really to my first point uh, this morning. The, the Bible, this is point number one. The Bible does not teach that slavery to men is a good thing. Uh, which would be absurd. I mean, you can imagine that if, that if that were the message of the Bible, there would not be a lot of slaves in the Roman world uh, coming to faith. The Bible doesn't teach that slavery is a good thing. Uh, this is pretty comprehensive in the Old and the New Testament. I'll give you a few examples. In Genesis chapter 37, you might remember the story of Joseph. He was one of uh, many brothers, but he had uh, his father Jacob's favor, and Jacob favored him with a very expensive coat, often called a coat of many colors. Uh, Joseph evidently flaunted it and did not behave uh, in a humble way towards all of his brothers who were older uh, for the most. And, um, and he was his father's favorite and his brothers conspired to have him thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery by evidently traveling merchants who they were uh, they were uh, observant of coming on uh, from a distance. So here Joseph is in a pit. 
He is not uh, a slave because of economic reasons. He is not a slave because of uh, biology in the sense of, you know, the color of his skin. He is not a slave because he is a part of a captured people. His brothers have literally stolen his freedom. And now that they have stolen his freedom, uh, the original plan was to, you know, to leave him in there and, and then kill him. But then they thought, well, you know, here's some, an opportunity to make some money. So they sell him to, into slavery. He is headed towards uh, Egypt. And this is all in Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph spends a significant amount of time in Potiphar's house as a slave. Uh, this is setting up one of the uh, themes in the scripture of um, kind of unintended consequences. Joseph's captivity and his being sold into slavery will become the grounds for the rest of his brother's freedom um, when they are under a famine later on and they are all starving to death. Uh, but then the end byproduct of this is, of course, they migrate to Egypt where Pharaoh eventually makes later generations of Hebrew people slaves themselves. So in an odd way, by selling their brother into slavery, uh, they end up selling themselves into slavery. Um, okay, so Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph is sold into slavery, this is not portrayed to us as a good thing. Matter of fact, at the end of the whole fiasco, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for evil. Okay, this, is, this was a bad thing. You know, Joseph was not eager to be a slave. The, the story doesn't set up slavery as a preferable way of living or as a, as a good way of living. It's a, there's no implication that, well, you know, slavery, it's just like holding a job at the supermarket or, you know, it's just like you and I, except you're poor and you have to do everything you're told. No, that's, <laughs> that, the Bible never presents it that way. It's, it's always presented as a negative thing, as, a, as a, an evil thing, as something that's not good. In Exodus chapter 4, uh, this is on the other end of Pharaoh enslaving the Israelites. You know, we're all familiar with the story. What does God tell Moses? He says, you're going to go down to Pharaoh and you're going to say, you know, let my people go, right? But in Exodus chapter 4, when God is giving these instructions to Moses, what he actually says is, you'll tell Pharaoh that Israel, the nation of Israel, is my firstborn son. And the real offense of, Slayro, of, of, the real offense of Pharaoh is, you have enslaved God's son. And uh, God says, now you must let him go so that my son can serve me. In other words, you have made my son your slave, your servant. You must let my son go so that my son can serve me, so that Israel can serve me. So again, not seen in a positive light in slavery, uh, slavery to men. Uh, Exodus chapter 21, we find that Hebrew slaves were to be set free in their seventh year of service. So in the law of God, if you were a Hebrew slave, and you found yourself enslaved, and you could find yourself enslaved for any number of reasons. Economic poverty, um, you know, a, a need for survival, an attempt to avoid starvation, maybe even recompense for a, a debt because of a crime that you had committed. Um, and rather than, than, of course, what we would do is we would put someone in prison where they would, I don't know, make license plates or wash clothes or just serve time there for a crime. You know, a, a punishment in the ancient times may have been Here's a material debt that you owe the person whom you've committed the crime against. If you don't have the money to pay that material debt, then you could you know, go into bondage for a period of time, but not 
not for more than six years. In the seventh year of service, uh, the Hebrew slaves were to be set free, and they were to be set free and provisioned to go forth and uh, to try to uh, do well in life, unless they opted to stay enslaved. If they were content in their position in life, that their needs were satisfied by their master, Hebrew slaves had the option to, to continue on in slavery. But in Exodus chapter 21, the implication is freedom is better. Slavery is not, a, is not a good thing. That's why the Hebrew slaves were to be set free after seven years. They weren't supposed to be enslaved for their entire lives. So the clear implication all throughout the Old Testament is that while slavery may be preferable to other alternatives, and by the way, it is. Slavery is preferable to starvation. Um, and if you don't believe that, that, that's why slavery existed in certain places in the ancient world. Slavery is preferable to the extermination of one's enemies. If uh, a people went to war and they fought a battle and, and you know one, one side was, was conquered and defeated, there you are left with the problem, what do we do now with the surviving men? What do we do with uh, women and children? Uh, and you know, we've conquered them, we've taken their city, or we've repelled them. We, something must be done with them. You can leave them to kind of starve, or you can leave them to retreat and rebuild and attack you again. Uh, but something is going to happen to them. You know, and a common option in ancient times was the extermination of people. And slavery would be preferable to extermination in the eyes of most, I think. Um, and then there were just economic realities. If, you know, everyone in Israel was expected, everyone in Israel was given an inheritance of the land. So Israel was in a, a pretty uh, economic, um, pretty economically generous state in the fact that every family in Israel was supposed to have a land. But a lot of the nations around Israel, they didn't have laws like that. You know, it's not like every, every family had an inheritance in the land. But even in Israel, you know, what happened if you found yourself in tremendous debt or if your area of land did not do well or if you found yourself in unfortunate circumstances? There are, you know, slavery is a preferable alternative to starving and watching your children starve. And in, in many parts of the world, that's what slavery ended up being. I would rather be a slave. Matter of fact, you, you get a sense of it in the story of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son. Uh, how one son demands his inheritance from his father. He goes out and he squanders it. And, you know, here he is destitute now and impoverished. He's working, you know, on, on a farmer, on a farm with pigs. And the farmer is barely giving him any food. So he's, he's eating what the pigs eat. And he looks up and he says to himself, I would be better off being a servant in my father's house than the existence that I have now. At least my, I know my father to be a generous master. So that's the idea. I mean, we think of slavery in very specific terms, either in Roman terms or we think of slavery in the transatlantic African enslavery, enslavement uh, terms. But that is not the only terms by which people are enslaved. And the Bible never implies that being enslaved to a man is a good thing, you know, but uh, there are a lot of men who aren't going to do good things. And being enslaved could be preferable to other things. If you look at a person like Joseph in Egypt, I would imagine him being a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt was preferable to him rotting in the dungeon uh, after Potiphar's house. I mean, which would you rather do? Would you rather be a slave to a good master or imprisoned in a dungeon with you know, no hope of escape? aside from some miraculous scenario. So, you know, 
While the Bible never never claims slavery is a good thing, it might it might be preferable to other alternatives in some scenarios. The New Testament, by the way, doesn't say that slavery is a good thing either. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. The Apostle Paul says that slaves should gain their freedom if they can. If, if there is a way for a, for a slave to legally gain their freedom, um, then they should try to do that. You know, and the implication there is it's better to be free from being, you know, the, in service to a man than to not be, you know, free. It's, so the Bible, point number one, the Bible does not teach that slavery to men is a good thing. Point number two. Slavery in the Old Testament is not the same as slavery in the Roman Empire or in the time of the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, there's a great YouTube video done by a guy named Peter Williams, and it's called Does the Bible Support Slavery? And it's a presentation. It's long, but it's important if you have questions about what the Bible teaches about slavery. Because the Bible acknowledges slavery, and it gives instructions about slavery. But those instructions about slavery could give the impression that the Bible is affirming a type of slavery that it's not. Okay? For instance, uh, there's a little table in the video, and it's easy to find, where it, it contrasts the conditions of slavery outlined in the Law of Moses versus the conditions of slavery in the Roman world or in our world, in the, in the, the Americas. For instance, uh, things like holidays are guaranteed in the Old Testament, not in the Roman world. There were some exceptions in the, in the New World. Things like making sure the slaves had food enough. Provision was guaranteed in the Old Testament. Slaves had to be well treated by their masters and well provided for. That was not the case in the Roman world or in the, the, the Americas. Um, slaves were given, you know, legal rights, and they had legal redress. They could, uh, they could go to the, and again, this is from Peter Williams' presentation. But they could go to the elders of the city of the gates, and they could appeal to a legal authority when they were being mistreated. And the legal authority was under command by the law of Moses and and uh, by the observance of the the rulers in Israel to uh, treat the slaves. Uh, without partiality. That's a big theme in the law of Moses. No partiality in the law. No partiality in the law. Of course, slaves in the Roman world in America had no legal redress. They could not simply appeal to a lawyer. They weren't. They, they had no rights. They weren't citizens and they had no rights to law. So they could be treated and wronged, however, and they had no claim. In the Old Testament, slaves are given sexual protection in the law. Um, they, they are not to be exploited or abused, and, and doing that would open one up to uh, the same sort of punishment for sexual sin that any other Israel, uh, Israelite was afforded. That would be you know, capital punishment. And so slaves had sexual protection. Of course, that was not the case in the Roman world or in the New World. In the Old Testament, it explicitly says that slaves could not be people who had been kidnapped or captured, you know, kidnapped and, and stolen away from their lives. So um, if, if you were found uh, to be in possession of a slave that had been kidnapped, it was your life that was on the line too. This was a capital offense. Man-catching is how it's often interpreted in the English in the Old Testament. It was a capital offense. Of course, that was not the case in the Roman world and in America's. The transatlantic slave trade was... Uh, almost entirely populated by people who had been captured and you know stolen away from from their lives and their livelihood, 
which makes it all the more appalling that that any person claiming you know uh, a Christian conviction uh, could turn a blind eye to the the Bible's explicit you know instructions regarding uh, the, the the immorality, the severe morality. There, if you think about it in terms of punishment, there was nothing uh, more uh, evil in terms of punishment than uh, capturing someone who was not a slave and making them into a slave and selling them. There was nothing more evil than that in terms of punishment because it was a capital punishment. So there was, not, there was no higher form of evil under the law than that. Uh, chains are not allowed in the Old Testament. You should not have chained slaves in the Old Testament. Of course, that's not true in the Roman world or the New, the new World. You know, slaves were not prisoners. They were not to be treated like prisoners. Torture. If you so much as struck a slave and knocked out a tooth, then uh, you were subject to, to judgment under the law. Um, and, you know, of course, that, that's we, the, some of the stories from the Roman world and, and the Americas are appalling in what was permitted and sometimes happened in broad daylight and sometimes under the cover of night. In the Old Testament, if, if your slaves were, were observed to be beaten, you were subject to judgment of law. Uh, uh, physical abuse, you know, same thing. Protection under the Old Testament, not in the Roman world, the New World. Uh, and then there's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Now here are the verses from, from the law of God. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. So <laughs> the Old Testament uh, foresees Israel as a land, a country, where slaves who are being abused and mistreated and who have been captured or slaves who have been wronged against who flee from their masters will have protection among those who receive them. Um, you know, that's, of course, you can imagine, you know, that idea in the Roman world or in, in the American uh, world. Uh, that How could you build a slave system based on uh, imprisonment and capture and uh, and the death penalty for a slave who runs away, which is what we see in the Roman world and in the Americas. How can you have a system like that that meshes with the instruction here in Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16? You can't. So the system of slavery uh, in the Old Testament is a system that was seen as a preferable alternative to worse uh, lives, to worse situations. Again, being a slave was um, preferable to being exterminated. Being a slave was preferable to uh, famine uh, and, and starvation. Being a slave was preferable to uh, the ex an existence in a dungeon because you had committed a crime for a debt that you couldn't repay in any sort of material way. But being a slave was never, you know, again, point number one, the Bible never implies it was a good thing. It was simply preferable in a fallen world to other alternatives and preferable because the Old Testament uh, had such strict laws about how slaves were to be treated, laws that were meant to preserve the human dignity of, of a slave. This may be a criminal. This may be, a, this may be a, a, an enemy who has been you know, defeated in battle. This may be uh, an impoverished person who can't take care of themselves and, and who would otherwise starve. A slave might be all of those things, but a slave is still a person, uh, still a person made in the image of God. 
They were not to be abused and made into sexual devices and stripped of all you know, legal uh, protection. They were not to be uh, kept in chains and imprisoned. And they were not to be uh, uh, contained in a hell-like existence on the earth so that they know that even if they manage to escape or run away from this hellish existence, the other citizens in the cities around them are just going to march them back to their previous masters as soon as they're caught and executed. So, you know, it's one thing to say that the Bible has laws to regulate slavery in the Old Testament. It's another thing to say that the Bible encourages slavery, or it's even more absurd to suggest that the Bible stands in some sort of tacit approval of the sort of slavery that was practiced in the Roman Empire or in the Americas, which it absolutely does not. Um, the Lord will judge. So those are two introductory points. Now let's get into the exposition here. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, uh, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. So that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. In other words, if you are a slave in the Roman world, don't, you shouldn't run away because you're just going to get captured and killed. There were any number of of revolts, slave revolts in the Roman world. And it never led to freedom. It always led to capture and killing. In some case, thousands and thousands of people. If you're a slave in the Roman world, you are in an unjust system. Guess what? Christians in the Roman world were also in an unjust system. Children were in an unjust system. Women we're in an unjust system. I'll give you two examples. Women were not citizens, and women uh, were, uh, women were, if they were wives, the, the property of their husbands. That's not just. That's not, that's not a legal, that's not a just legal situation. Children uh, could be abandoned and left on the side of the road to die if they were unwanted by their, by their parents. Um, that's not just. You know, that, that's not fair. They could be forced to labor uh, in, in awful conditions and situations. So the point is, there were a lot of people living in unjust situations in the ancient world. Um, Paul is not telling those people, hey, you guys, look, the situation is fine. You know, other people may think it's bad or may think it's a sinful situation, but really, you know, the situation's fine. You're just making too big a deal out of this. Or you're going to die and go to heaven someday, so the situation you're in is no big deal. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying you are in a fallen world. You presumably knew that when you confessed Jesus Christ was your Lord and you sought salvation. How you have been saved in a fallen world is how you're going to have to live in a fallen world unless your circumstances change. And 1 Corinthians 7, if you can buy your freedom in a legal way that's going to honor God, then do it. Then buy, buy your freedom. But if you can't, and if you have a master, honor your master, even if he is unworthy of honor. Um, why? And here's the reason. Um, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. It's the same reason why Paul behaved honorably 
towards his jailers when he was imprisoned unjustly. Um, why he behaved honorably towards governors and why he was repentant when he unknowingly said a dishonorable word against the high priest of Israel. Okay, He behaved honorably even to those who were imprisoning him, beating him, taking his freedom, and would eventually sentence him to death. He behaved honorably towards them. Paul is not demanding someone do something other than what he himself is practicing here. And the reason is, if you're a Christian, you have acknowledged that there is a, a God who has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for you, and that Jesus has secured for you an internal inheritance, and that the world around us is going to fall under the judgment of God. And do not dishonor your masters so that the name of Christ, the doctrine of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, develops a bad name amongst those who are in authority and in, in positions of power where we live because it is better for us if we can live peaceably with all men and share the gospel and see people get saved. This is a radical thing that Paul is, is teaching. The idea is the ultimate change that is going to make a difference in the world is the doctrine of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. And not endless slave results, slave revolts. I'm having trouble talking today. The ultimate change that needs to happen in our world is sinners need to be saved so that they fall under the moral instruction of God's Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and their hearts are changed and they are compelled to behave in a world around them with love and compassion and mercy and kindness instead of heartless exploitation. And you say, well, that's a pipe dream. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a pipe dream. When you look at those who fought against slavery in our country and those who fought against slavery in Great Britain, their reasons for why slavery was appalling was because embedded in who they were as people, and they believed embedded in who their nations were as nations, was the idea that all men were created equal under God, in the image of God, and so all men had unalienable rights bestowed upon them by that Creator. Now, they may have had different views about the Creator, but they believed that men had unalienable rights, rights that they could not be alienated from, <laughs> rights that they could not be separated from. And the grounds for men having such rights was the fact that they had been given them by God who created them. And the, the, the foundational promise that a country must make to its citizens is we will protect the rights bestowed upon you by God. That did not exist in the Roman world. <laughs> that did not exist in the Roman world. And 
What changed the Roman world over time was the growth of the church. And some people even argue it made the Roman world softer and more vulnerable to conquering by the barbarians, the Visigoths and the, and the rest, but, you know, whatever. The, the point is the gospel changed the Roman world over time. And uh, the foundational principles, the doctrines of God, that we are um, all created equal in His image, bestowed with human dignity that should not be exploited and that should be protected. Those doctrines are what has always fought against slavery. Those teachings, those ideas, that's always fought against slavery and oppression. Now, there are certainly people who, in the name of Jesus, have done awful things, just like there are people who've done awful things in the name of everything, in the name of atheism, in the name of, of, uh, uh, of race wars, I mean, um, <laughs> much of the communistic genocide or the, the socialist genocide that we've seen that took place in the 20th century, whether it was in Russia, China, or uh, in Nazi Germany, was done under the premise of there is no God, so we're doing what we're doing for the in some cases, racial purity of the state, or in other cases, just the benefit of the state in general. So there are awful things done in the name of, of everything, in the name of God, in the name of atheism. When we look at something like slavery and the Bible, we have to look and we say, what does the Bible say and what does the Bible teach, not what's been done in the name of, of the Bible. Okay? So this is what Paul teaches. Uh, the doctrine of God is what changes the world. Salvation is what changes hearts and lives. Uh, the message of Jesus Christ will change the world. So treat your masters with honor so that the message of Jesus Christ can spread. Now, Paul was making that argument in the first century. Okay? Um, that's a pretty bold thing to say. Jesus was a rejected Messiah, a crucified Messiah. Christianity was the state religion of nowhere. And Christians were persecuted and on the run. There was no material advantage to being a Christian when Paul uh, writes this and when this is proposed. There's no material advantage. Uh, it made you an enemy of the state. And so for Paul to say this message of Jesus Christ is going to change the world is a pretty radical thing to say. And yet here we are 2,000 years later and it's absolutely true. And it's changed the world undoubtedly and arguably uh, for the better. Okay, so the gospel is what Christian people are about spreading the gospel, preserving the gospel, preserving their, their human character, their human testimony for the sake of the gospel. Um, a couple sub-points. Matthew chapter 5, instructions of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul is not asking slaves to do anything that Jesus didn't command us to do. Um, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this is where Paul says, if you can buy your freedom, buy your freedom. But listen to this. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 and 22. Were you called while you were a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Don't think that, oh my goodness, I can't serve God because I'm a slave. That's what he means. But if you can be made free, use it. If you can be made free, do it. Then verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So this is really what I want to get at as I try to wrap this up here. 
And I know we've got one more verse. We'll make one more point here. But have you considered what it means when we talk about surrendering your life to Jesus Christ? Because what Paul says with regards to slavery is this. If you're a slave and you get saved, you are Jesus Christ's free man. The rest of the world may see you as just the property of another being. But in the eyes of God, you are free. You're free from sin. You're free from judgment. You're free from the ensnarement of this world. Uh, you're free in Jesus Christ. And if you are a free citizen who believes in Jesus Christ and gets saved, you are a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, there's no distinction there. The slave uh, to another man who gets saved is free in Christ, but he's also a slave now to God. This is a point made throughout Romans. In other words, surrendering to Jesus Christ means forsaking this world and surrendering yourself to a master. Now, foundational to Jesus' teaching is something he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either serve one and despise the other or serve the other and despise the one. But you can't serve two masters. And that's the idea here. Saying, Jesus is my Lord, calling Jesus Lord Jesus, is a statement of surrender. In other words, I am surrendering my rights. I am surrendering my, my will. I am surrendering my possessions and my belongings and I will be your slave rather than a slave to sin and self and, and world. I will be your servant. This is why in Ephesians 2, Satan is pictured as the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the world to enslave men, and he enslaves men by making them captive to their own desires. The world wants to exploit your desires to make you a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to evil, a slave to greed, a slave to lust. The world is not preaching a message of selflessness and sacrifice and righteous moral conduct because those things don't appeal to who we are naturally as people except for in some perverse manipulation of it. The world wants you to go do what you want with your life. Serving Jesus means surrendering those rights and becoming his slave. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, no one had to teach me that. I understood that when I became a Christian. And if you've really become a Christian, you understand that too. To be a Jesus slave is a high honor and a privilege. My identity now becomes wrapped up in the identity of my master instead of the identity that I've crafted for myself. The identity I craft for myself is, is not that great. But if I can be a servant of Jesus, if I can be a slave of Jesus, now I can do something honorable. Now I can do something worthwhile, something good. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Your money is not your money. Not if you're a Christian. Your house is not your house. Your time is not your time. Your evening is not your evening. You were bought with a price. 
the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So honor God. Fourth point, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. Paul writes, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believing, those who are benefited are believers and beloved. In other words, um, if you have a master who has gotten saved himself or herself, don't despise them because in God's eyes you're equals, but then you report to them in the day-to-day. -day. Don't despise them, but instead uh, honor them and think of it as this person is a servant of Jesus Christ and a slave of Jesus Christ. And what he does with all of the prosperity that he has in this life, which I'm contributing to as a slave, what he does, he's called to honor God, and my master, who is Jesus, will hold him accountable just like he holds me accountable. Um, and there's a whole, lest you think that the rich and the prosperous are getting off the hook here, that, that this sets the ground for uh, everything throughout the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Okay, so he's not done talking to the prosperous and the rich here. He's talking here, though, in these first two verses, specifically to slaves. And is it a hard message? Yeah, it's, it's a hard message. It's a hard message that you should honor masters who are Christians and honor masters who aren't Christians. But that's the message. And you know what? That message is applicable to us even if we're not slaves because we're called to honor authorities who treat us unjustly and authorities who treat us justly in our own life. Again, I'm not diminishing slavery. I want to be clear. Uh, the Bible never implies that slavery is a good thing. You know, through modern technology and the, the, the prevalent availability of food and, and the world that we live in, slavery is unnecessary. It's not... We don't need, now we don't need a lot of other things either. I don't believe that we need mass incarceration, not to get too political, but maybe we need more capital punishment, but not mass incarceration. But slavery is not required. We don't need this. It's not, an, it's, it's not a necessary alternative to anything right now. So I'm not defending slavery or trying to minimize it. I'm simply saying the principle here of showing honor to masters and authorities even in unjust situations for the sake of the gospel applies everywhere, applies everywhere. If you have a, a boss, if you have an authority in your life, a teacher who is, they're not an honorable person and they don't treat you justly or fairly, honor them for the sake of the gospel because presumably they know you're a Christian. If they don't, then you're not doing a very good job identifying yourself in the world. I mean, the world should know who the Christians are. There's not supposed to be undercover Christians in the world. If you're a Christian, your friends should know it. Your, your, your co-workers should know it. Your neighbors should know it. We're not supposed to cover this up, okay? But them knowing it means your character also reflects upon the gospel and what the gospel does in someone's life. And so it doesn't matter who the authority is. You're supposed to honor that authority that God has put in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to work at the same job forever. I mean, you can go get a different job if you have that freedom. But a slave wouldn't have that freedom. And sometimes we don't have that freedom either. Sometimes we are truly stuck in a situation of serving under a dishonorable person. 
And when you're in that situation, you, you can't just, you know, let the insults fly and the gossip and the slander. You're supposed to treat them with honor, not because they deserve it, not because they deserve it. You're supposed to treat them with honor because the only thing that truly changes the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teaching of God, the doctrines of God. And those doctrines will be compromised and blasphemed if you are an enemy to those who need to hear them the most. Um, it's not an easy thing to treat someone with honor who's not worthy of it. It's not an easy thing. Um, and it's also not easy to serve a believer in one of those situations because believers, even if they're Christians, even if they're forgiven, believers are not perfect and they're going to sin. And if you serve with them long enough, you're gonna, they're going to do something dishonorable or unfair or something that you just can't understand or dis something you strongly disagree with. And you're supposed to honor them in that situation too. Um, I want to leave you with Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here is, is Paul's statement of personal perseverance in this, okay? This is because you have to have a theology to fuel this kind of living. If you just say, okay, I have to honor people, I'll go out and I'll try to do that. It, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. There has to be a theology, a reason behind this kind of thinking. And here is Paul from another passage in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. So maybe I'm being mistreated. Maybe I'm being uh, unfairly compromised here. What do I tell myself? I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I've surrendered my entire life. Whatever this person Whatever this boss, whatever this master can take away from me, I have already been crucified with Jesus Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. My life is not about me. It's not my life. My life is Jesus' expression on the world to a lost world. It's, this is, I may be mistreated right now, but it's really Christ being mistreated. And how will Christ in me respond when I am mistreated? This is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live to take this beating. I no longer live to take this insult. Christ lives in me. Christ is the one taking this beating because my life is His. He's my master. The life I live in the body how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I live this way? The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is my Lord, that He is on the throne, that He is with me even in the most heinous of offenses, that He will never leave me nor forsake me, that He will in the end work all things together for the good, for me, because I am called according to His purpose. So the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself up for me. And so I trust Him with this life. And that's how I'm going to take the abuse. That's how I'm going to surrender myself. That's how I'm going to get through this. 
And one day when I die, I will receive an eternal inheritance and a reward. An emphasis on eternal. This is, you know, as James writes, this is, you know, a, 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 a brief vapor of wind going by. This life that I live in the scope of eternity is a fleeting moment. Blink of an eye. I believe that by faith. And so I live by that faith that Jesus loved me and He gave Himself for me and there is an eternal and eternal inheritance and reward coming for me no matter what happens to me on this earth. Can you say that? And is that how you live? Is that how you live? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus to that point? I hope you have. It will radically change the way that you go about the hours of your day. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray for the people who've heard this. I'm no ancient history expert. I'm not even a Bible scholar. But I know your word well enough and I love you. And I believe that there's power in this message. Power to change hearts and minds. Power to free people from sin. Power to bring people into eternal life forever as opposed to eternal judgment. And power to change worlds, countries, and civilizations. I believe this is the most powerful protest we can make against the world that we live in. A protest based on the rights bestowed upon us by God. Making arguments that can only be defended, that can only be accepted if we believe in a God who loves us, loves us even to the point of death. So, Father, thank you for demonstrating that love and for giving us a foundation for so much of what we do hold precious in the civilization that we live in. We ask for forgiveness, forgiveness for any way that we have exploited these freedoms and used them for our own selfish interests. Our lives are not our own. As Christians, they belong to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.